Let's pray together. As we go to prayer, this, of course, is Mother's Day, and Mother's Day means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Strikes us in different ways, and I thought, what could we do to sort of, sort of acknowledge that, but also uh, draw from the Scripture? And I was, my attention was turned just a few minutes before service to the words of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Could say, in a, a way, she was the first person that the gospel was ever preached to uh, in all of its fullness. She was the first to have Jesus preached to her. And this is what she said when the angel came and announced that she would be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. She said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And we can all say this, mothers, fathers, adults, children, those of us who know Jesus Christ, we can say this with her. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. And and then just a little further down, Mary says these words, and he has filled the hungry with good things. And Father, as your people this morning, we acknowledge that, that as those who've met, encountered, and ultimately trusted Jesus Christ, Father, many of us have walked with him now for, for a significant portion of our lives. We can say that we know these things are true of us. We know they're truer than ever. We, we realize them more deeply than we did the day we met you, uh, that you have, in fact, had regard for the, the humble state of, of your people. Father, that, that our, our condition wasn't just humble, it was lost. It was blind was far from you without a relationship, a a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then one day, Father, so many of us here can say, and then I met Jesus, and he has filled me with good things, and, and he's regarded where I am, and he's put me where he wants me to be. And Father, none of that is to our credit. None of it's even to the credit of the people who spoke the gospel to us. All the credit and the glory goes to Jesus. And for the saving work he did on the cross, And Father, to you and to your Holy Spirit for applying it in our lives. And Father, if nothing else draws us back here week after week, Sunday after Sunday, simply our gratitude for the cross ought to be enough. And so Father, we come before you this morning as grateful people. We come before you reminded that that you have taken lives that were empty and lost and filled them with the goodness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do just want to thank you and praise you for that great work that you've done. Father, beyond that, we know, of course, that then you gave us your word so that having trusted Jesus Christ, we would not be without an anchor, a, a hope, a direction in this world. Lord, you've given us much hope through your word to show us how to live and how to worship and, and Father, how to get back up and, 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 and come clean before you when we've stumbled and fallen and run far away. And Father, we come back to your word once again this morning Many of us because we want to, but all of us because we need to. And Father, we ask that it's taught this morning that it wouldn't be about the teacher and the outline and the big idea, but it would be about the Word of God taken by the Spirit of God and applied to the hearts of the people of God, and that you would have your way among us. So Father, as your Word is, is opened and taught and heard now, we ask that your Spirit would come and guide us in truth, that your spirit would come and protect us and shield us, guard us from misunderstanding. Father, that your spirit would move right now, even in this moment, to deliver our hearts from all of that stuff we brought with us that we should have laid down a long time ago. And Father, we ask that for the next few minutes we'd see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word, and may you be glorified, and may we leave having magnified and committed to continuing to magnify the name of Jesus in whose name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, as always, we'll dismiss right now for Children's Church. So if you've got boys and girls, or if you are a boy or a girl from about five years old up through second grade, make a break for it right now. And you go spend some time in God's Word. That's what the kids are going to do. And for the rest of us, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I want you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 20, uh, where we have obviously continue, resume, press on in, in, uh, in the story of the book of Acts, the story of the early church. And, and specifically, we are now, of course, uh, heavily into the midst and really drawing to the conclusion of the third great missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. As you're turning there, I want to read the passage in its entirety right up front. Let me just ask, and I visited with you a couple, a, a number of you about this this week. Have any of you been watching this AD series on Sunday nights on, on, on TV, the story of the book of Acts? Anybody been watching this? Am I like, okay, a handful of us have. If you don't know about this, I would encourage you to check this out. This has been an interesting thing the last few months. I feel like every fellow pastor, preacher, teacher I'm talking to, they're all teaching through the book of Acts, and I don't get it. Everywhere I look, all of my sort of colleagues in ministry are teaching or finishing or starting the book of Acts. It's, it's already been all around. And now, you turn on your TV on Sunday night, and they're telling the story of the book of Acts every Sunday night at 8 o'clock on NBC. I don't get it. God works in mysterious ways. But um, it is extraordinary. I'm not saying it's 100% accurate and faithful to the Bible, but I don't sit down with a critic's eye. I sit down to watch the story. And I would guess about 80 or 85% of the time, they're being faithful to the story. They're telling the story of the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. And it is remarkable. Uh, it's exciting. Our, um, we've been watching it with our kids, and, and it's prompted great conversations. Dad, did it say that in the Bible? Didn't it? Is it there? Uh, is this how it really happened, or isn't it? So it's sparking conversation. Now, I do give sort of my, uh, my plug for it with a, uh, with a bit of a caveat, which is when they put that little TV PG thing in the corner, and it has a V for violence, they mean it. <laughs> it, is a, it is a challenging. I've got my finger on the button all the time to sort of skip or to mute certain things. But, you know, let's give credit where credit is due. We say we want to see more of, of the gospel and the Bible and our culture. They're preaching the gospel every Sunday night on NBC. I don't get it, but God is, is, is faithful, and, uh, and it's been interesting. And so it's been fun, and, and it keeps me fired up about the book of Acts as well, to realize uh, these stories and, and the truth and the reality of them. And we get to an interesting one here this morning in Acts 20. Like I said, I want to begin just by reading the, the passage, this morning's passage in its entirety. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now I'm going to go down through verse 16. If you have a Bible, I would urge you to follow along where this is what the Word of God says. Luke writes, he says, After the uproar had ceased, the uproar was what we saw last week in chapter 19, this near riot in Ephesus that was brought about by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke says that after that it all quieted down, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had ex exhorted them and taking his, taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us, Luke now includes himself in the story, at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. This would be the church, the believers in the city of Troas, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message until midnight. 
And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, don't be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then he left. And they took the boy away alive and were greatly comforted. But we, again Paul and the missionary team, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go there by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus, for, verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You know, a lot of people probably think, and perhaps this morning you are one of them, that Bible colleges aren't necessarily the place that young adults go when they're looking for a good time. I mean, you think about how can I, as a young person, a late teenager in my early 20s, have a good time at this season of life? I'm guessing most high school graduates, young adults, don't think Bible college is where the action is. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you this morning, and I was reminded, because I was at one yesterday, that, uh, that if you think that way, you may well be misinformed. Because I would suggest to you this morning that having spent four years in Bible college myself, it's, it's easy, it's just as easy to have a good time there as it is anywhere else in, in life and as a young adult. It's just that in Bible college, our fun is, well, it's different. And by different, I mean it's unique. Certain things can happen there. You have a good time in ways that maybe you can't in other places. And the reason I was thinking about that a lot this week is because a lot of the fun that we had in Bible college revolved around sleep or perhaps the lack thereof, which is what's going on, at least in part, in this morning's story in Acts 20. For instance, where else but Bible college, really, can you lean over to your best friend who's fallen asleep, sound asleep in class, and 15 minutes into the hour-long lecture, Bible college, elbow him in the side and say, hey, man, Prof just said you're supposed to stand up and close in prayer right in the middle of class. You can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that at Coe College. <laughs> you can't do that in Iowa City, but in Bible College, you can have fun doing things like that. Another story, this happened before I was at Emmaus, but the story's been around long enough that either it's a really good legend or it really is true. But there was one particular professor who had a chronic sleeper in class. I mean, every single day, it was the same. This guy came in, sat down, lights out for an hour, and this professor decided he'd had enough, was going to teach him a lesson. So what he arranged again? Bible college. You have to think Bible college. Is he arranged with the rest of the class that the next time it happened, on his signal, 15, 20 minutes in, he was going to clear the room. He was going to keep lecturing, but he'd give a wave. Everybody else was to get up and leave. Leave their books behind, their backpacks behind, their jackets behind, their pencils and papers behind. Out of the room, out of sight, next class. That's what happened. The guy falls asleep, he's out cold. Professor continues to lecture, gives the signal. Out the door, around the corner. Professor lecturing, makes his way out the door, around the corner. As soon as everyone's out of sight, and this guy is clearly gone, again, Bible college, pre-trib Bible college, <laughs> He arranged for one of the students to blast a trumpet in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he woke up in the room in Bible college alone. And, and again, my point is simply this. In Bible college, we have fun, our fun's just different. <laughs> we do things you can't do in, in other places. And I tell you those stories, of course, because the centerpiece of today's story. In the book of Acts, this passage deals with another young man who fell asleep during the sermon. But what I hope we'll see by the time we get through it and we begin walking back through these 16 verses together is that this story that Luke, under God's direction, didn't just include this story in Acts chapter 20 as a lesson on the dangers of falling asleep in church. It's not a morality tale about what can happen to you if you show up sleepy on Sunday morning, as I know many of you do, and I know who you are. <laughs> There's more to that happening in this story than, than just that. Than simply a lesson of of falling asleep, because what I really think these 16 verses show, again, as Paul is moving toward the conclusion of his third missionary journey, is that, that there were some very specific passions that kept the early church moving forward. There were some very specific shared passions that Paul himself had as an apostle and a leader in the early church of Jesus Christ. But as you see him visiting these churches, many for the final time, you see it's a passion that they shared as well. Things that kept them moving forward toward maturity. And, and the reason I want to draw our attention to them this morning is I think they are passions, they are pursuits that, that every Christian, every follower of Jesus should be pursuing if we're serious about our spiritual growth and moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ. So that's simply what I want to look at here this morning. Three things that every Christian ought to be pursuing. Three things that if you know Jesus Christ, as I know Jesus Christ, whether you've known him a month or you've known him a lifetime, these should be passions that are driving you forward in life. And they are as follows. Let's dig in number one. The first one is found in verses one through six. We get a glimpse of, of the passion that Paul and his fellow Christians had for stronger, deeper relational bonds among the church, stronger bonds of relationship among fellow believers. This was a passion that Paul had and that we should have as well. And I say that because, while well, on the surface, again, if you look in your Bible at verses 1 through 6, this first section of chapter 20, it, it, it sort of seems as you read through it, maybe as you followed along as I was reading, it sort of seems like little more than, than sort of an alphabet soup of names we can't pronounce and places we can't find on a map that, that sort of meant something to somebody once upon a time, but hardly mean anything to us, hardly fertile, fertile soil for spiritual insight and instruction. But I'm going to ask you to take another look at these verses with me because, because I think there's more going on beneath the surface because what this sequence of, of names and places shows, and we've noted this a couple of times in Acts before, is that the Apostle Paul, though he was, that he, though he was an apostle, a leader, a busy guy, that he had a deep abiding concern and passion for the well-being of his fellow believers in Jesus Christ. That no matter how far he traveled and how many places he went, and, and that he always ensured when he left the town, he'd go into town, preach the gospel, plant a church, move on, no matter how hard he worked to leave that church in capable hands of fellow shepherds who would keep the church moving forward, even so, upon leaving, his heart was always still there. With, with how these believers were doing. Were they pressing on for Christ? Were they, were they standing strong against a, a hostile culture? So much so, and the reason that I think that's evident here in Acts 20 is because we see him going to extraordinary lengths to go back and, and check in on them again. 
For instance, in verse 1, when it says, Paul, after leaving Ephesus, that, that he went to go to Macedonia, well, that's, and maybe we can throw the map up here on the screen just a minute to remind ourselves of this journey. When it says, verse 1, he was going to Macedonia, that's the top left-hand corner. Churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea was there as well. And when verse 2 says that he went down into Greece, that's straight down there. That's actually Corinth. Gre uh, Corinth was the province of, uh, in the province of Achaia, also known as Greece. And, and, and what we remember as we've been walking through the book of Acts together is that those had each one been significant places of gospel ministry. Those are places where Paul went in, there was perhaps no gospel presence there before, but he began to preach the gospel. People turned to Christ. Lives are transformed and changed. Miracles are unfolding. It would seem sometimes on a regular basis. Each of these cities and each of these churches were places where Paul had seen Jesus radically transforming lives of men and women and children alike. And so clearly, what am I saying? I'm saying, well, there's a general lesson here on the mutual love and concern we should have for one another, that we should care about one another and our progress towards spiritual maturity, that we should care whether you're moving forward or falling back, and that I should be willing to come alongside you and, and be praying with you and for you as fellow believers in Jesus Christ. But there are sharper lessons beneath the surface here as well. There's some specific things I think we can take hold of, and, and I want to mention two of them uh, real quickly. One of which is found really beneath the surface in verses 1 and 2. Because, well, again, these verses seem ordinary enough. It says, after the uproar, look again at your Bible. It says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. He exhorted them and taken his leave of them in Ephesus. He left to go to Macedonia. And when he'd gone through those districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Again, I told you that's primarily Corinth. Well, to us, those couple verses seem ordinary enough. When you begin digging around elsewhere in the New Testament, the other letters of Paul, elsewhere in the book of Acts, you begin to discover that Paul's visit specifically to Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, the time he spent up there, while he was excited and glad to be there, there was a sense, a spirit of turmoil in his heart. There was something that was nagging and eating at Paul as he was ministering there, and it had to do with the church down the road in Corinth. Because with the the book of 2 Corinthians tells us, reveals to us, is that prior to making this last swing through these cities, Paul had written a letter while he'd been over in Ephesus to the believers in Corinth because he heard that they were uh, tolerating sin in their midst, that, that there was immorality and there was division and there was sort of rebellion against leadership and faction in the church, factions in the church. And, and, and he wrote them a letter to correct it. Now, we believe that letter's been lost, that somewhere between 1 and 2 Corinthians, this, this letter was written. And in Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, it's a letter that I wrote, these are his words, in much affliction, anguish, sorrow, and with many tears. He wrote ahead to the Corinthians and said, you guys are messing around. You're not walking with Jesus. You're not living for Jesus. You're tolerating stuff that God wants out. He wrote him a hard letter. And so as he's hanging around, the Bible indicates up in Macedonia, up in the corner, he's thinking, I don't know if I can go down to Corinth. I don't know how they received it. Did they receive my letter? Will they respond to it? Or, or are they going to choose to repent and, and walk with Jesus? So what, what 2 Corinthians goes on to say is he sent Titus, one of his associates, down to Corinth ahead of him to check on the situation. Did they get my letter? Did they respond to my letter? Is it okay for me to come and see them once again? And in 2 Corinthians 7, it says Titus did that. He went to Corinth, and then he came back up to Macedonia. He said, Paul, I come with good news. They got the letter. 
They responded to your challenge, to those strong words you sent them about getting right with Jesus, and they are ready for you to return and, and to be with them once again. And, and that enabled Paul then to go down to Corinth, not just to visit, but what did verse 2 say? It, it said, or excuse me, verse 3 says, he spent three months among them continuing to preach and teach the gospel. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because sometimes as believers, our care and concern for one another isn't just, I'll pray for you. I'll come alongside you. I'll cheer you on when things are good. Sometimes our mutual care and concern for believers means I got to talk to you about the tough stuff because I love you too much to let it go. That if I see something in your life that in humility I'm willing to address it, to speak to it, and say, you know what, you may not like hearing this from me, but, but there's something going on here, and it helped me understand what's going on. The way you're living is, is not in accordance with a maturing follower of Jesus Christ. What, what am I saying? I'm saying that oftentimes our, our care and concern for one another as fellow believers means I'm willing to risk peace in the relationship in order to move toward maturity in Jesus Christ. And that's hard. It's hard, but Paul was willing to do it, and, and God honored it. Now, sometimes God honors it very slowly, sometimes very quickly, sometimes we never see the result. But it's here. Paul was willing to do the hard thing, not coming down on them from above, but coming alongside them as a, as a fellow pilgrim and follower of Jesus Christ. I think it's also of interest, and I'll just mention this briefly, talking about this pursuit of, of, of care and concern toward one another as believers. It's interesting in verse 4, again, it's, it's just a list of names. At least to us, it's just a list of people. We don't know a lot about most of them and, and what their stories may have been. But in verse 4, there are seven traveling companions mentioned with the Apostle Paul. There's seven of them. There would have been Paul. Silas, we assume, would have been there as well. Luke includes him, although he's not mentioned specifically in verse 4. But what the scholars tell us when they dig into verse 4 is that each of the seven men mentioned in this verse hailed from a different church that Paul had established. That as long as he'd gone along the way visiting place to place, region to region, sometimes hundreds of miles apart from one another, he'd take these men with him and and, and what's thrilling to me is there's no evidence that there was rivalry, competitiveness, that he favored one church over another, that, that there was division among. They were a ministry team. They had one ambition. It is to, to get the gospel out, to keep spreading the wildfire, and to function as a team as we do so. I think there's a lesson there as well, is there not? It's that, that factions and, and rivalry and, and, and a competitive spirit between believers has no place territorialism in the body of Christ particularly since, like us, they were in the cultural minority. What am I saying? I'm saying we need one another. We need not just one another here, but the larger body of Christ. And the fact of the matter is, and this is true, is true of me as anyone else, sometimes I don't even know other people in the body of Christ, much less trust them or choose to work with them. Paul didn't have that problem. Come with me. We're, we're about the same mission. We have to get this message to the world. And, and so Paul was pursuing constantly bonds, stronger bonds with, with fellow believers. And, and, and I think the challenge here, at least implicitly, is, is that we must do the same. If we are passionate about seeing the wildfire spread, if we're serious about moving toward maturity in Christ, one of the things we have to be passionate about and pursuing is stronger bonds with our fellow believers, not living this life all alone. It's the first thing I see, the first passion in, in this story and then it's followed, and, and, and right along with it in an equal measure, in verses 7 through 12, there's a second passion, a second pursuit that was evident as Paul continued ministry, as he visited these churches that was shared by his co-laborers. 
And that was along with pursuing stronger bonds among fellow believers. There was among Paul and, and the other Christians around him, secondly, a persistent, growing hunger for God's word. If we are serious about moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ, there must be within us starting, growing, continuing a persistent hunger for the truth of God's word. And of course, this is the section that brings us back to, to what is probably considered the, the most memorable part of the story. Uh, the centerpiece of the first part of Acts chapter 20, which, which is this story of this, this young man, Eutychus, falling asleep in church. We find that, or at least during Paul's sermon, in, in these next several verses. And I was thinking about that this week. I was looking at what it says that Paul said on the first day of the week, he's intending to leave the next day, and, and they're in this upper room, and he's preaching long into the night, and, and the lamps are going, and it's putting this kid to sleep, and, and he falls out the window and all the rest. I thought, well, you know, there really is a sort of a slam dunk big idea. It's probably the big idea of all big ideas from a pastoral perspective. <laughs> I don't even need to say it. It's right there, isn't it? Yeah, don't fall asleep in church or else. And I thought, well, we could just end the sermon right there, and my mission will have been accomplished today. But that's not the big idea, so don't close your Bible. It's a powerful lesson, an important lesson, but it's not the main lesson here. Because while it is the fact that Eutychus, who, who the, the Greek, uh, the language here indicates, was probably a young man between maybe 10 and 15 years old, kind of prime time for falling asleep in church, if you know what I mean, well, he was a young man, and, and the fact that he fell out of the window and fell down dead, and Paul raised him from the dead is, is sort, of the, sort of what grabs our attention here. The fact that he fell asleep during the sermon, as I thought about it and prayed about it and dug in a little bit deeper, I thought, you know what, maybe the more remarkable thing in these next few verses is the fact that while one young man fell asleep and fell out of a window, everybody else stayed wide awake for the teaching of God's Word. Everyone else in the room stayed focused on the teaching of the scriptures. Look again at verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, it says, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Then we have this sequence. Eutychus falls down. Paul raises him back from the dead. Maybe that was the jolt they needed to press on through. I don't know. But it says that in verse 11, after he raises this young man from the dead, he went back upstairs, broke bread with, with the fellow disciples, and ate, and then he talked with them a long while until daybreak. Now, the application there isn't simply that God likes long sermons best, though if you hang around here a while, you might get that impression. Instead, instead the lesson, the application, really here, the challenge is the hunger these believers had, the willingness, the commitment, the dedication to say, this is, it's not Paul's word, it's God's word. This is God speaking to us through the scriptures and, and, and through the teaching, the hunger they had and that we should share to absorb the teaching of the truth of God's word. It's to realize that this book he's given us, which by the way tells us it is directly given to us from God. Yes, he used men to write the words on the page and to, to translate and to, to deliver it to us for our benefit, but this is God's word to us. It's God's word to us. And to realize that in it, there is all the, the wisdom and instruction and insight and direction that we need in order, first and foremost, to be reconciled to God and then to walk faithfully and fruitfully for him in this world. It's all here. 
everything we need. Not everything we want, not everything we want to know. We still walk away from the Bible after years and years, even still with questions. But the Bible says that everything we need for life and godliness is in fact found in these scriptures. And therefore, with that knowledge alone, we should hunger for them and long to know them and invest our lives in in, in getting in and, and seeing what it says. I think really the application is, if you want to put it in very practical terms, terms that we all think about, myself included, it's, it's bringing the question that we all show up with on Sunday morning, me included. Every sermon I've ever sat down and listened to, I've had the same question you have. You ask it in one way or another, but we all mean the same thing. What's in it for me? Right? What's he going to say this morning to hold my attention, to make me laugh, to make me feel better, to, that I can write down and take home? That's, that's a fair question to a point. But I think the application here of, of, of the fact that they were willing and hungered after God's word all night is taking that question and bringing it into balance with what kind of heart have I shown up with today? Am I willing to listen? Not, not to Pastor Aaron or the Apostle Paul or any other preacher, but listen to what God's Spirit wants to say to my heart through it. What's in it for me? No, what did I come ready to do? Did I come ready to listen, to respond? Is my, did we, as we sang earlier, have we come with open hearts? That God's ancient word can speak and change? I'd be the first to confess I don't always come that way. And I imagine neither do you, but we should. Ask that question Am I a willing listener, not to the preacher, but to God's Spirit speaking to me through the teaching of His Word? Are you cultivating a hunger for God's Word in your life? Are you, are you in it often, saying, Lord, Lord, what is it your Word says? How do you want me to change? What, what do you want me to do? Or, or simply, Lord, who are you and how can I worship you more fully? Kent Hughes says he pastored for 40 years, and I, I quote him because I agree with him 100%. He said once, quote, falling asleep in church really does not concern me. Now, don't write that down and take that home, because <laughs> there's more. He said, falling asleep in church really does not concern me. He said this, he said, what concerns me are the thousands who warm a church pew every Sunday, whose bodies are awake but their souls are asleep because they don't know Christ or, or their hearts hardened against Christ or somebody drug them here and they're here this morning to make mom happy, right? And, and not realizing that God is offering to them eternal life and hope and transformation by the power of Jesus Christ. And, and the most critical ch step in, in changing that equation and in, in waking up, first of all, is trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. We understand that, believing that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and by repenting and believing in him, we can be saved. But then it is, once I've taken that first step, that I then make this the guiding force in my life. And I'm ready to say, Lord, what do you want to say to it, through it to me? That's what kept Paul moving forward. It kept him going to these extraordinary lengths to go back to the churches to teach the word again. And I believe it's what kept the church in Troas up all night ready to listen. So we need what God has to say to us here. So pursuit number one, stronger bonds with fellow believers. Pursuit number two, a, a persistent hunger for God's word. These things will keep the wildfire spreading and us moving forward toward maturity. But there's one more in the final four verses. And it's this in, in verses 13 through 16. Pursuit number three is a driving passion 
a longing for corporate worship, a driving passion to worship together in the company of God's people. I realize, and I want you to look at your Bible one more time, at these last four verses uh, we're looking at this morning, that for the most part, they're really just sort of a travel log. They're telling us a, a quick succinct summary of events of, of, of the next leg, one of the final legs of Paul's third missionary journey. He goes somewhere, he spends the night, goes to the next town, spends the night. This is verses 13, 14, 15. We're just following him along until we get to verse 16, where, where sort of a curious statement is made. It says, four, Paul is moving along fast, and then Luke tells us this, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Now, you've all probably at some time in your life done road trips, as, as my family has as well. A few years ago, our road trip, our summer family vacation, we did this sort of mountain region western swing. And the last stop on our journey, as we were sort of sightseeing around uh, some of the national parks and things of that nature, was in Rapid City, South Dakota. We went to Mount Rushmore. We spent a few days in Mount Rushmore, the Crazy Horse Monument, all the tourist trap kind of stuff that's there that I love, all that stuff. And, and we had a great time. And, and, and finally, of course, we, we kind of done everything we could do. It was time to go home. And our plan was this. On the final day of our, our great big western vacation, we were going to drive straight home, 700 miles from Rapid City to Cedar Rapids in a single day, seven people in a van. You've tried it before too, right? You know what I speak of. And the way I work, I'm like, we, the earlier we start, the better. I mean, if we have like five hours under our belt before breakfast, we are cruising. That's good. But I knew it was going to be a long day. Well, so we got up early and we got on the road, but then we were reminded, and we knew this was coming, that one exit east out of Rapid City, South Dakota, is this funny little place called Wall Drug. You know what I'm talking about? And we think, <laughs> cheap donuts and free coffee, and I'm like, I'm in. And, and so you got to stop at, at Wall Drug in, in South Dakota. And I thought 30 minutes tops, right? Like two and a half hours later, we've gotten the donuts, we've drunk the coffee, we've spent way more money than we thought we would spend. And I'm like, we have to get going. We have gone 12 of the 700 miles and, and we're burning daylight fast. So we get in the van, we drive the next exit, and you know this if you've been there, out of Rapid City, South Dakota, is for the 40-mile highway loop through the Badlands. And I'm like, no way. We have got to, I want to sleep in my bed tonight. And as I'm cruising past the exit, my wife leans over and she says to me, we may never pass this way again. <laughs> Making it all spiritual. She said, this is a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I think we ought to do it. So what do I do? The next exit, I drive off, turn around, come back. We do the 40-mile loop through the South Dakota Badlands, and for the rest of my life, I'm eternally grateful to my wife, to my family. It was the right decision. We had a great time, and, and I've been glad we did it ever since. And and you've got experiences like that, I'm sure, in your life as well, where you've got choices to make. What's the real priority? And, and, and I share that with you simply to say, how much more difficult would verse 16, what we're told in verse 16, have been for the Apostle Paul as he's weighing what's my next, perhaps even my last move on this journey? Because what does it say? It says he decided to sail past Ephesus because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Now, why was that a big deal, a tough decision for Paul? Well, well, Ephesus was perhaps, although there had been tough times, they're one of Paul's most 
favorite and most fruitful seasons of ministry. He spent three years there with these people. He led them to Christ. He, he established a church. He'd seen God do miraculous things. He'd been protected in, in all sorts of, of exciting and, and, and God, uh, really God-driven, miraculous kind of ways. It was a church filled with precious faces and names and stories and people. And, and he must be thinking as he's sailing past it, I may not ever come this way again. I love these people. They are my people. And, and this may be my last chance to see them. But he said, but I've got to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Why? Well, Pentecost for thousands of years had been one of Israel's great annual festivals. It was the harvest. And it was when God's people, anyone who could, came to Jerusalem. They celebrated for several days, uh, praising God for his provision, for his goodness to them. But, but we who've studied the book of Acts know Pentecost meant something more now. Because a few years earlier, that's where the Holy Spirit showed up. On the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, filled the apostles with the Holy Spirit, sent them out preaching. Day one, 3,000 saved. Pentecost was sort of, if there was a high holy day for them to turn to and, and to celebrate. Man, this may have been it, the pinnacle for Paul. And so deep down in his heart, he says, I want to go to Ephesus and be with the believers, but oh, to be with God's people and worship. To worship in the company of God's people at the heart of the church where the whole thing started. A place where on previous Pentecost, he'd probably been a, a persecutor and now he's a follower and in love with Jesus Christ. To worship among believers in Jerusalem on Pentecost had a whole new level of significance for Paul. And it overruled his desire to, to stop off once more in Ephesus. And I was thinking about that tension. And, and again, we all have to make these choices in life. What's, what's going to win out? What's more important? What do I do? It reminded me of something my friend Daniel Henderson says all the time. In fact, I think every time I've ever been around him, or spoken with him. He's made this statement, and I want you to think about it, because I had to for a while. He said, as we go through life and, and are confronted with choices, especially as Christians, he said, we need to remember this, that the power of no is in a stronger yes. Think about it. The power of no, what motivates me to say no to some things in life is that there is a stronger yes that I want to pursue. Priorities. The power of my ability to say no to things that are inviting and interesting and fun and good. Sometimes in life, I say no to those things because there's a greater yes, a stronger passion that overrules and shapes everything else. And, and what I'm saying to you here in verse 16 is Paul's stronger yes was corporate worship. To be in the company of God's people, singing his praise, worshiping him, it overruled his desire to see his friends one more time. The power of that no was because he had a a stronger yes. And you can see where I'm going with this because I need to go there too. It's, a, it's the same stronger yes that should shape our lives as believers. Do you have a passion to worship God in the company of his people? Is what we're doing here this morning a big deal to you or not? Because to be here to say yes to this, you do have to say no to other things. Sleeping in among them. Sunday brunch. The NFL today for 20 weeks a year. You got to say no in order to say yes. Are we willing to do that? Are we committed? What's the stronger yes in your life? What's the stronger yes in my life? Now, that doesn't mean we, we never miss church. That's legalism, and we're not about legalism here, and certainly the gospel isn't about legalism either. But is worshiping God in the company of his people, is that the, the strongest yes that shapes your day and your week? I think on the authority of God's word, it should be. That there should be a driving passion 
not just to show up for church, but to worship God in the company of his people. And so when you put those things together, the, the pursuit of stronger relational bonds and, and, and an enduring, persistent hunger for God's word and a driving passion to be together with God's people in worship, you discover that this passage really is about a whole lot more than a kid who fell asleep in church, fell out of a window, and Paul raised him from the dead. That's cool, but that's not the point. The point, as the big idea of the message this morning says, is that pursuing Jesus is our first priority. Not should be, it is. The pursuit of Jesus is, by definition, our first priority. And that when Jesus said that the greatest commandment of all is to, to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, he meant it, not some, all. And may our prayer and our passion be, as illustrated for us here in Acts chapter 20, that those things are true and coming true in our lives as well. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, and, and Lord, not just the things it teaches us on the surface, but the lessons that are, that are very much embedded and, and integral to the story. Father, that while we're drawn to the, the story, humorous in retrospect, because he, he was brought back to life with this young man falling out a window because he fell asleep in church, we realize it's just to grab our attention and to show us that there was more going on here, that your people were, were advancing in the face of a hostile culture with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer is simply this morning as we close that it would be so in our church, and it would be so in our lives, in the lives of every person in every church that names the name of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, may we truly be your people this day, this week, and always. And in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.